Finishing sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The time for empty talk is over. Now arrives the hour of action. Do not allow anyone to tell you that it cannot be done. No challenge can match the heart and fight and spirit of America. A new national pride will stir our souls, lift our sights, and heal our divisions. Together, we will make America strong again. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And yes, together, we will make America great again. And now, Stacey Washington. Well, that intro uh, bit of audio there of President Trump rousing Americans to think about our nation in loftier terms is a fantastic segue in today's program. Welcome into Stacy on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. So glad to be with you today. We have so much to discuss. Namely, uh, my, my big thing for today is Democrats beginning to hate their own new ideas. <laughs> and I can't help but laugh. I'm telling you, when I think about how often the Democrats are now literally contradicting each other, if you, if you watch CNN all day, which I don't actually have the opportunity to do, but you can catch the clips between this place and that place. Just just go go down from CNN and you watch as the day develops. It usually starts off with some crazy comment by AOC and then it just unravels from there. And the Democrats are now openly bickering about what they believe and what will work and if we have enough money to fund their ideas. And there are some pragmatists out there who feel like, you know, hey, it's a way to get conversation started. It's a way to start. You start way over on the left and hopefully drag people on the right to the middle. But they're not over on the left. They're they're in Marxist land. They're they're the progressives from socialism to communism type progressives, not progressives in the traditional American sense of the word, which I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if that ever really was a thing or if we were just duped into thinking it was. So today on the show, we're going to talk about a few things. There's this unrecognized mixed blood tribe in Oregon, which has reached out to Elizabeth Warren to offer her membership because they feel like they're the same kinds of Indians that she is. And now that they've found her, she can find them and they can say hello and she can say hello and they can be together, (laughs) which again is so funny. Um, And then Fareed Zakaria, you guys remember him, right? He's from CNN. He's somebody that I have uh, on occasion taken issue with because of his radical, really hate-filled speech towards people on the right, namely Sarah Palin, who you don't have to like Sarah Palin to acknowledge that she and her family have been rudely and roundly just vilified for existing, for being alive, and for not being traditional, you know, East Coast liberals. And he has said some terrible things about the Palin family, so much so that he almost lost his job at CNN. So you can only imagine how far back I almost fell out of my office chair here to see him actually dropping what he calls truth bombs on Ocasio-Cortez, Elizabeth Warren, and others. So we're going to get into that as well. Um, I want to 
point you to urbanfamilytalk.com for the marriage conference that's coming up in June. And you will want to get registered for that. It is a ministry-wide event, meaning the entire American Family Radio group. So everyone is this is a part of this new um, conference, meaning it's kind of an upgrade from last year. So we're going ministry-wide here, and it's a fantastic opportunity to learn about marriage, family, and life at a conference and to meet some of the hosts here and to meet some of the people who work in the ministry here and to be a part of what we're doing. And so we're so excited about that. Go to urbanfamilytalk.com to find out more. Um, So then also, I want to get into our daily confession for today. It's Philippians 3, 13 through 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what, what, what are we supposed to be doing here? Well, we're not supposed to be sitting around and saying how terrible things are and not doing anything about it. And doing something about it doesn't mean we have to start a group or start an organization or start, you know, any anything in particular. It means we have to be working where we are. Where we are is in our homes, our workplaces, our families, doing the things that God would have us to do that he's called us to do and doing them well as unto the Lord in obedience, but also praying not just for our nation, because that, that's, that's an important thing for us to do, but we also have to pray for our communities, not just our own family, but other families in our community, finding the time to do that. And you're, if you're thinking, hey, I got a lot to do, you do, but you don't have too much to do that you can't spend time praying for what's going on in this country. And, and that's a perfect lead-in to a big, huge story right now, um, which is the Senate Democrats blocking the bill to stop infanticide. And, you know, we talk often about abortion here on the show, and I think we were pretty single-minded, at least my email box and my social media tells me we're single-minded and feeling this is an important issue. And it's gone from being something that people are afraid to talk about to something that people feel compelled to talk about and delineate themselves. And we, we discussed on the show earlier in the week how there's a, a radical shift in the way people feel about abortion. And it is radical when you see poll numbers trending towards the pro-life movement, which is not something that has been the case in the past. It's been kind of a slow, um, hard slog to get Americans to move away from this, you know, safe, legal and rare, and it's my body, my choice and all that stuff. But a new poll found a dramatic shift on abortion attitudes. And I talked about the Marist survey. Between the lines, and I, I want to go a little bit further into it because this dovetails in with what we're seeing at the Senate. The Senate is out of step with Americans here. Carvalho or, or Cavalojo, I'm messing up her name. This is a person who uh, spoke to Axios, Axios.com, about the Marist poll that we discussed uh, the day before yesterday. And and the This is the first time since 2009 that as many or more Americans have identified as pro-life as have identified as pro-choice. The most significant part of the poll, according to her, is that Democrats, specifically those under the age of 45, are leading the shift. 34% of Democrats identify as pro-life versus 61% for pro-choice. Now, last month, those numbers were 20 and 75% respectively. So dropping from 75% pro-choice in under the age of 45, they went from 75% to 61%. As Democrats, 
learn more about what their party is doing with abortion as they escape the kind of bubble that they're in, the information and news bubble that you're in. If you only watch MSNBC or CNN, if you get outside of that and you begin to understand what legislatures are proposing and under the guise of protecting Roe v. Wade from a newly conservative Supreme Court, it becomes obvious that these people are not in line with what you believe. Most people believe that abortion only happens if someone is raped or if there's incest or if there's health of the mother. Most people don't understand that 950,000 abortions uh, for the latest reportable year per the Guttmacher Institute means that well over 95% of abortions are done for contraceptive reasons. Most Americans don't realize that. In fact, the most frequent reaction that I receive when I share that statistic is people will say, where are you getting your numbers from? Because I think if we were aborting 950,000 babies a year, I would have known about it. I've had people tell me that indignantly. I, you know, I think if we're going to have this conversation, you can't make things up. Facts are facts. You have to deal in real facts. I've, I've had people tell me this. When I tell them, um, do you believe that Planned Parenthood, the organization that tracks abortions in America and is a part of Planned Parenthood, that that is a place that you could trust? Sure, I do. Sure. And then when I tell them that's the number from them and I say, look online, look at the number of abortions that are committed worldwide. Look how much money we spend on it. Then they get upset because they've been duped and they don't like feeling uninformed. Most people actually will begin to hate you if you tell them things that they were completely unaware of that go against what they believe. Most Americans believe that abortion is rare in this country. They don't understand the full death toll. And now that more and more Americans are finding out what that is, and it, I mean, to me, I would think that after New York legalized abortion up to death and removed the killing of an unborn baby from the criminal code, that 80% of Americans would be pro-life. 85% of Democrats would be pro-life, mainly as a backlash against what's they, what they've been taught, what they've been told about how it's just going to be safe, legal, and rare. But we're not seeing that, are we? So young Americans under 45, uh, among, among Americans under 45, 47% identify as pro-life versus 48% pro-choice. But those numbers were 28% and 65% respectively back in January. So January to now. So, you know, literally since Americans saw these stories, since they heard Virginia Governor Ralph Northam talk about uh, you know, this this need to make sure that if a baby is born uh, after an abortion attempt, that the baby be made comfortable while the mom and the doctor decide how to dispose of it, how to kill it. Even though the baby's been born, the baby's breathing air and it's outside the mom's body, no longer connected, no longer a euphemism for her body. And Ralph Northam thinks that's a good time for them to discuss how to kill that baby. And Americans who are aware of that... um. They're, they're disgusted by it and they're recoiling in agony. They don't want to be a part of this. And my hope is that we'll see a radical shift in the way, especially since this is the young people we're talking about, 45 and below, that those people leading that, that cause, which I, I'm hoping I'm speaking to some of those people as well because I'm, I'm in that age group, that we're all going to be really pushing forward, right? Get, getting to a place where, it's not just an incremental teensy little bite here, teensy bite there, but a radical pendulum swing towards people being very rooted and, and 
just a, a clinging to the ethos of it's a baby, it's a baby, it's a baby. You can call it a fetus. If you use Latin, if you use German, it doesn't matter what language you're using. It's a baby, it's a baby, it's a baby. And I also think we got to give a few kudos to President Trump who speaks out about abortion and doesn't seem to shy away from the subject. That's a huge difference, huge difference. Um, so late-term abortion could become a 2020 flashpoint, and I don't think the Democrats see that coming. They're not aware that that's going to be an issue for them. Um, so as I mentioned, the Senate Democrats blocked a bill to stop infanticide and to care for babies born alive after abortions. The Senate voted 53 to 44 against ending the filibuster and allowing a debate and vote on the bill itself. Now, every Republican present voted to end the filibuster, along with Democrats Joe Manchin, Bob Casey, and Doug Jones. All other Democrats voted against the bill. Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, who supports abortion, did not vote, and she hurt the effort to collect the 60 votes necessary. 60 votes were all that were needed. So pro-life Republican Senators Tim Scott and Kevin Kramer were unable to attend the vote due to flight delays, but would have voted to support the bill. I, I, I feel their pain. Remember, I, I got canceled from the beautiful uh, Black History Month reception at the White House because my flights were canceled. So I totally feel the pain of Tim Scott and Kevin Kramer. But that would have only taken the vote to 55. Lisa Murkowski would have made 56. So they still would have needed four Democrats. And you would think that the senators who are running excuse me, who are running for the presidency would have been the first ones to jump on this because they look bad. To mainstream Americans, they look bad. So Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Bernie Sanders all voted to block the anti-infanticide bill. Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska was actually totally frustrated as the debate went on with the false claims that abortion advocates were making about the anti-infanticide legislation. You know, he says he thinks that the people who are spouting the talking points believe it. And if you've ever been in a place where something that you believed was being questioned and you're kind of in the, the valley of decision, as it were, you know that there are times when you cling to what you've believed previously without letting on to anyone else that you're in conflict. I don't believe that as many of these Democrats who are voting for this are totally fine with it as it may appear. I think they're voting under duress. That's not going to stop them from being judged for it, but I think there's more turmoil here than what we're reporting. All right, so when we get back, we're going to have more for you. Head over to StaceyOnTheRight.com and hit the subscribe button, and we'll be right back. Hello, everyone. I'm Tim Wildman, president of American Family Association and American Family Radio. You can't squeeze more into three days, and we will, in Washington, D.C. on our spiritual heritage tour. In June and in September, we're going to the Capitol, Library of Congress, the Supreme Court, Lincoln Memorial, the Korean and Vietnam Memorials, the Iwo Jima Memorial, the Arlington National Cemetery, the White House, that's outside, Jefferson Memorial, and the National Archives, and... We're going to Mount Vernon on that Saturday of our tour. So, so much to see, so much to do, and it includes lectures and talks from Stephen McDowell, who will be our historian along the way. For more information on these June or September spiritual heritage tours and the separate tour to Williamsburg, Jamestown, and Yorktown, for all the information on this, go to spiritualheritagetours.com. That's spiritual 
heritagetours.com. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. Sometimes I find myself a bit overwhelmed with all the challenges before me in our ministry. There are funds to raise, critical decisions to make, deadlines to meet, the need to rein in my schedule. I find myself praying, Lord, how am I going to get there from here? Then the Lord reminds me of his faithfulness. There's an old song that I need to remember constantly. It goes, it's no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, he'll do for you. Listen to Joshua chapter 4, verse 3, and then verses 6 and 7. The children of Israel had just crossed over the Jordan River. God did an incredible miracle. Verse 3 says, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you, and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. Verse 6 and 7, Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. Every once in a while, we need to pull over and look in the rearview mirror of our minds. Step back from your challenges for just a few minutes and remember the faithfulness of our great God. Then get back into the battle, take courage, and step out by faith. You've been listening to Legacy Moment with Crawford Loritz, pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in Roswell, Georgia, and heard on the weekly program Living a Legacy. To view an online transcript of today's thoughts by Crawford, go to livingalegacy.org. That's livingalegacy.org. Legacy Moment with Crawford Loritz is produced by Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Global Ministries. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The Una Nation describes itself as a mixed blood tribe because its members are Native American mixed with other races. And that means that you have at least one ancestor that was an indigenous or Native American person. The tribe started in 2009 after being rejected by existing Native American tribes for not meeting the bloodline requirements. Now the tribe is backing Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's been criticized for saying she was a Native American. If she's Native American or of Native American descent, that means she's a mixed blood. And we stand by her in her statement that she is part Native American. With that in mind, the Una Nation put together a welcome packet for the Massachusetts Senator. Uh, this is the welcome letter, and this is her certificate of tribal enrollment. We're offering her, we're granting her uh, as a gift enrollment in the Una Nation. When she's asked next if she's a member of a tribe, hopefully she'll be able to say proudly, I'm a member of the Una Nation who accept me for who I am. The packet will be sent to Warren's D.C. and Massachusetts office. Lake says he hopes the move delivers a clear message across the nation. We want to ensure that people like us, like her, are not overlooked and are not pushed aside any longer. Lake says the tribe is not looking for benefits, just acknowledgement of their existence. And they think endorsing the Massachusetts senator is one way to do just that. <laughs> so, welcome back to the show. Thanks for making your home at American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Okay, so um, 
if you watch the video, and I'll, and I'm I gotta double check, make sure I got it up on the Facebook page. Um, you'll see that these are people who don't appear to be Indian in their heritage. They they look like the same people that you might see anywhere else you might go. And I'm not saying that because you don't see Indian people anywhere else you might go, but I'm I'm trying to say in a very gentle way that they just look like regular, you know, they look like regular people. They don't they don't look Indian in any way. Um and and so they're they're doing this and again I actually don't care if Elizabeth Warren is an American Indian or, you know, she could be mixed with, you know, a hundred different things like so many other people are. What I care about is that she has used this lie over the course of her career to gain advantages and that there's also there's, there's a sense of um, like, like, it's like she's a con artist and she's gotten so good at it that she's even convinced herself and that she's had to make this a part of her campaign shtick, if you will, and that even in the face of it backfiring, she's not been able to let it go, which shows you how far we can deceive ourselves. Like deception can go to a degree that it it works on ourselves, where we're deceiving ourselves to the degree that we can't see the truth when the truth is presented to us. So anyway, I, I just thought that was some funny audio, the way they talked about they're sending her a certificate and he signed it right there on the thing. I mean, it's just it's crazy pants. Um, so there's there's that. Now I w- I want to talk about two other two other topics. And the first one um, is this is kind of breaking news a little bit. Um, military news: the all male military draft has been ruled unconstitutional by a federal judge in Texas. Now what's funny about this is my son, our son was uh, he was like, Mom, did you see the all male military draft has been ruled unconstitutional? So girls have to be a part of the draft too. And I was like, really? And so you know. He sent me a link to the story. This is a federal judge in Texas. U.S. District Judge Gray Miller of the Southern District of Texas wrote, the time has passed on debate for women in the military, regardless of whether the matter of women in serving in combat may have justified past discrimination. And the quote from him, I was just, this is crazy. He, He wrote a declaratory judgment rather than an injunction and said, the average woman could conceivably be better suited physically for some of today's combat positions than the average man, depending on which skills the position required. Combat roles no longer uniformly require sheer size or muscle. Now, I would disagree with him vehemently, but I'll go on. The lawsuit has actually been brought by the National Coalition for Men, which sought to raise awareness about the ways that sex discrimination affect men and boys. And Mark Angelucci, an, an attorney for the men who brought the lawsuit, said that the ruling may be symbolic, however, either they need to get rid of the draft registration or they need to require women to do the same thing that men do. In 2015, the Pentagon announced all combat roles will be open to women, and the U.S. hasn't had a military draft since 1973 during the Vietnam War. Now, the current law is this. Women can volunteer to serve in the military but aren't required to register for the draft. But all adult men must register within 30 days of their 18th birthday, or risk losing eligibility for student aid, job training, and government jobs if they fail to comply. Now, I thought it was like you could go to prison. So apparently it's just you basically can't work for the government if you decide not to do uh, or get student aid. Uh, Signing up for the draft entails registering with the Selected Service System, which is an independent agency that aims to ensure fair distribution of military duties if the president and Congress had to enact a draft. Now, what this doesn't discuss is how many people are ruled out of military service. If you have flat feet, if you have asthma, if you have scoliosis, 
um, if you have a, a autoimmune disease, um, then you are automatically disqualified, but you still have to register for the draft. So they have your name and information and your number. And then when you would appear, if there was a draft, then they would automatically, you know, you'd be set aside. You wouldn't be able to serve. So it's interesting that the feminist movement has brought about this uh, new form of, it, to me, it's just an, another lowering of the standards. And it's another, it's like a nail in the coffin of the idea that women are unique and valuable and deserve protection from men. It also means we'll have lower levels of military readiness. Any combat unit that has a woman in it, you, you now have 12 men or 11 men and one woman, 11 men who should be working on the mission who are now working on protecting that one woman. That, I mean, and, and it's just, that's just the way it is. And you also have a higher incidence that the Navy, they don't report the story widely, but you can find articles about how high the rate, the incidence is of women sailors getting pregnant on the boats that they're on when they're, when they're out at sea sailing. Every time they make a stop back on land, they have to drop off pregnant uh, sailors. So the point of them being out there is what? to increase military readiness because the, the the only thing the military is supposed to do is make war, break stuff and kill people. They're not there for social experimentation or to make women feel good about being women or to make society feel great about equality. The military is there to accomplish whatever their stated mission is and to achieve the goals with relentless precision. So the idea that women need to be there just because women might be really good at doing something that a man is not as dexterous at doing defeats the entire purpose. There are men who are good at doing those things, and those men should be assigned to those positions. And I'm speaking from a position where I served on active duty in the military. I was in the Air Force, but I wasn't in a combat role. And my husband served, my dad served, my granddad served, my great-granddad served. So what? It's, it, it, this is about military readiness. And anyone who has this kind of, it's, it's almost like some kind of a, um, it's like a mental deficiency where it's knee jerk. Um, there was actually, I, so someone was sharing a story with me about how they were in a discussion with another lady. It was two, two women talking and the one was saying she'd gotten really good at doing push-ups, and she'd gotten up to 20 pushups. And the other one said, Oh, I just, I can't, for some reason, my upper body strength isn't good. I can't really do push-ups well. And the first lady said, oh yeah, you know, if you want to increase your upper body strength, you start off with the female push-up, the, the women's push-up. And the second lady got triggered. I was like, what, what do you mean the women's push-up? She said, well, it's, the, it's like a beginner push-up that you can do. You start on your knees and push up from there and then you can, you know, advance up to the full push-up. And she was like, I can't believe you're calling it a women's push-up. It doesn't have to be a women's push-up because it's a beginner one. And so she called a friend over, a, a guy who's nearby, and said, do you do the male push-up or do the, the women's push-up? And he said, why would I need to do the women's push-up? Is that a thing? <laughs> and walked off. And so there's this idea that if, because it's called a women's push-up, you should be offended. There, so can we just get back to reality and stop having everybody's feelings dictate how we talk? And, and I mean, I, I, I know Anyone can get triggered. I can get triggered. I can get offended. This isn't about, you know, not having feelings or not being humans, but come on. When we're talking about lives, people dying, whether or not we win wars and conflicts, who cares what women in America feel? It's about winning wars. That's all that matters. 
there'll be a lot of people regretting um, supporting all of this feminist garbage because once they get to a place where they want to make women a part of the draft, a lot of women are going to be really angry about what their sisters have dealt to them. So then there's a study. And I saw this and I was like, oh my goodness, who's in charge? So the study says, kids make us happier if they don't cost too much. The analysis links a challenge of paying bills to lower happiness among parents. Now, I don't know what kind of parent you got to be to not be happy with your kids because um, they cost money. Like, do you, okay, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to hurl invective. The study asked the question, does having kids make us happier? A new paper argues, yes, once you control for the cost of paying the bills. The way that kids shape their parents' happiness has been the subject of ac- academic debate for some time. Interesting, the bulk of available data seem to side with hypothesis B, that children put a damper on parents' free time and financial resources and are therefore a net negative for emotional well-being. While the So there's two thoughts. The, the other thought is one school of thought argues that having kids should make us happier, Otherwise, why do people keep doing it? Well, so this is really complex. And sometimes when uh, these kinds of studies are done, the people who are doing them aren't parents themselves. Or if they are, they're coming from a perspective that is uniquely skewed. It's almost as if they need an education in, in the many different reasons why people want to even have children. So the bulk of available data seem to side with this idea that there's no significant effect of childbearing on overall happiness. I think this is absolutely garbage. However, for the more scientifically minded, the question becomes why exactly this is. Do kids actually make their parents unhappy or are there some other unforeseen factors which explain the so-called parenthood gap? Now, for my part, obviously I'm not a an, uh, statistical analysis person on, on this front. I, I don't do studies or write papers on this stuff, but I can say that I am a much happier person since we've had kids. And even with the different things, you know, kids getting sick, all the, all the things that come along with parenting, I wouldn't change it. And I definitely wouldn't say that when we've had to pay for things for the kids, it's made me unhappy or wish that they weren't there. So here's the quote. They write in their new paper, David Blanchflower and Andrew Clark. Uh, here's a quote. Children are expensive. Controlling for financial difficulties turns almost all of our estimated child coefficients positive. We argue that financial difficulties explain the pattern of existing results by parental education and income, country income, and social support. They looked at 10 years of data from Eurobarometer, an opinion survey of Europeans that has asked about the presence of children in a respondent's household annually since 2009. Their analysis covered results from more than a million Europeans. So here's the, the, the cake taker. Europeans aren't as happy as Americans, Okay. So this, this report appears on the free beacon. Europeans are not as happy as Americans. And I, I know you guys have heard me talk about how much I love the place where I grew up, which was Germany. But Europeans just aren't as happy as Americans are. Not only are they not as happy-go-lucky, they're just not as happy. So in Europe, the happiest group are the married with no kids. Every group, every other group, the ones with kids, has significantly lower life satisfaction controlling for a set of variables. Well, that's because... When you have kids, you have a whole other set of problems that comes along with having kids that you have to factor into the decision to actually have them. So if you don't want them and you don't have them, then you're going to be happy with the decision that you've made because that's the choice that you've made. 
And the other thing I want to point out, and this is not as appropriate or doesn't work over as well for the European respondents in this survey, but it works over perfectly for uh, Americans living in America. And that is, if you're living in a big city in an area where it's very expensive to raise a family, it is perfectly reasonable to start yourself on a path to being able to work either remotely or to switch jobs or to, to even open your own business so that you can move to a part of the country that is less expensive. I mean, I, I see people do it here all the time. I, it's a, we have a running joke in our uh, book club about the women that you see who've moved here from California. They always have a starry-eyed look on their They're like glazed over and everything about them is just super happy. You can tell they've come here from California because they sold their little, you know, three-bedroom, one-and-a-half bath house on a hillside in California, beautiful neighborhoods, all of that. They sold that house and whatever they had left over from the profit of that sale, they're able to actually use that to buy a house here sometimes for cash because the, the, the housing prices are so expensive there. So they come here, they realize they can live in a really just to them, it's a palatial mansion, you know, thousands of square feet bigger than what they had. And their kids can go to public school and they're perfectly fine with it. You know, they're, they're a little more on the liberal side, so they're willing to put up with more. They're, they're happy with public school. They might even be able to afford to float private school as well because the cost of living in the Midwest is so much cheaper. And so it really becomes an issue of what are your expectations? If you want to have kids, if you want to have a family and you look at the amount of money that you're making and you're saying, well, we can't, we can't afford to live in New York City, who can? Very few people can afford to live in New York and raise a family. But you can afford to live in St. Louis or Joplin or Columbia. Those are all in Missouri. Uh, you can afford to live in a, a bunch of different states, right, running up and down the middle of the country. You can also afford to live in North and South Carolina and Nashville, uh, you know, any place in Tennessee. You can choose to live in an area that is less expensive. You can do your job almost anywhere. Just pick the same job in a different city that's cheaper, a city that doesn't have a a state tax or go to Texas where there's no uh, property tax. And you move there, you get into an affordable living situation. You don't buy a palatial mansion. You buy a place that's big enough for you and your family. And then you'll find that you really love having your kids and that it's not such a burden. And I'm saying that because I think we've got this idea that we're all supposed to live like the people on TV. They're not living there. They're actors. They're on movie sets. Real life dictates that we live in a way that enables us to have the things that we really want and prioritize. And for a lot of Americans, that's kids. So it can be done. There's no reason for you to be unhappy because you have to pay for stuff. Just move to someplace cheaper. All right, when we get back, we'll have more for you. Stay there. Can solid teamwork building principles apply to all of life? Here's Tony Dungy, author of The Soul of a Team, with today's Uncommon Moment. When was the last time you put a team member's needs ahead of your own? How did that impact you, the other person, and the team? The Apostle Paul advised an early church, Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. The people you want on your team are those who seek to improve, yet who are also willing to allow their individual goals to take a back seat or be revised for the good of the whole. No matter your role or position, you must be selfless and realize that it's not all about you. You're a part of something bigger. 
Tony Dungy, best-selling author of The Soul of a Team from Tyndale House. More at CoachDungy.com. Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. We've been all over the country helping disaster victims who lose everything. It's truly a blessing. I really don't have the words to express. And yet, they see a glimmer of hope when a volunteer shows up. Building the home, that's the second reason we're here. The number one reason is to share the gospel and and give them hope. It's everything that's right in America. I mean, it really represents the, the best that we have to offer. That's one of the main reasons for doing it, is being able to be the hands and feet of Jesus and coming out and working with so many wonderful volunteers. I just feel like it's important in this day and age to teach a child uh, how to serve. Please go to our website, 8daysofhope.com, and click on Get Involved. Submit your email address, and the next time we go anywhere with a disaster, we'll invite you to come along as well. I love coming in the job room because you can see these pieces of paper, they aren't just a piece of paper. Right. It's a family that's hurting, and it's a gospel opportunity. And I just thank God, you know, for this moment. I mean, I'll be back in my home, and I know it's going to be awesome. Come love others with 8 Days of Hope. Foreign Dispatch. Friday morning in Sheffield, England, and thousands of people gather in a city park as US Air Force planes fly overhead in a tribute to 10 American airmen who died 75 years ago in extraordinary circumstances. Returning from a raid in Denmark in a damaged jet, the crew nearly landed in the park, but spotted a group of children playing and instead veered into trees. One of the boys they saved, Tony Folds, now 82, told us about his devotion to a crash site memorial. I come 270 times a year. I sit with them every morning. I put my hand where their names are on on the brass and I talk to them. I tell them where I'm going, what I'm going to do the rest of that day. Fold says he feels guilty. I've always said that I killed them. But on Friday, he secured a tribute to the young Americans he calls his 10 close friends. In London, Simon Owen, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Consider the race by prominent Democrats to embrace Medicare for all. A variety of expert studies have estimated that the total increased government spending would be between two and a half and three trillion dollars a year. Few of the many proposals being floated would likely raise anything close to that in revenue. And if a Herculean effort were made to raise revenue for Medicare for all, there would be few easy avenues left to fund any of the other ambitious proposals on the new Democratic wish list. Let me be clear, universal health care is an important moral and political goal. But the U.S. system is insanely complex, and getting from here to single-payer would probably be so disruptive and expensive that it's just not going to happen. Now, there is a path to universal coverage that is simpler. Switzerland has one of the best healthcare systems in the world, and it is essentially Obamacare with a real mandate. But that probably feels too much like those incremental policies of the past. Or consider the tax proposals being tossed around on the left, including a wealth tax championed by Elizabeth Warren. I understand the appeal of tapping into those vast accumulations of billionaire loot. But there is a reason that nine of the 12 European countries that instituted similar taxes have repealed them in the last 25 years. So that's Reed Zakaria. And if you think he sounds really logical, um, if you think he sounds like you're thinking to yourself, who is that guy? Um, He does sound a little bit, a little bit 
logical. But then if you listen to him a little further, if you if you dig in just a little hair further, you hear him actually espousing really their liberal ideas that have failed. If Obamacare was a huge hit, then people wouldn't still be uninsured. If Obamacare was a huge hit, people still wouldn't be declaring bankruptcy to get away from their medical bills and expenses. So it's not that the liberal ideas work. It's that they're basically saying, look, let's let's try what Donald Trump did. They feel that the ideas that Donald Trump put up were so radical um, that it drug everything to the right. And that's how he was able to win. And they feel like if they promise all this pie in the sky socialist stuff like Bernie Sanders did, they can win the presidency and then maybe give some of it. The problem is none of the things they proposed before worked, and now they're to the left of those things. Obamacare is a massive failure. And if you look at the way, I I call it degradation. We have an actual degradation of the quality of health insurance. The, The product that is provided to us, it's different now. When you go to the doctor's office, when you go to the hospital, everything's different now. It's not the way it was before Obamacare. And so are we to take that that's just like magic, that it just happened because we don't know why it happened? No, we have to understand the process. So now, you know, speaking of of crazy pants, and I was really surprised to see this. It's Claire McCaskill, and it's just a teensy little bit of her talking about, again, these these are dive-in-the-wool Democrats. They're progressives. They're, I oppose their policies vehemently. But they're really called, they're sounding the alarm. They're like, look, there's a problem with Ocasio-Cortez, Elizabeth Warren. There's a problem with the things that they're saying. There's a problem with the ideas that they're putting forward. McCaskill is actually saying that Medicare for all won't be what people think. People don't understand what Democrats mean when they say they want to implement it. It's number one. I hope that everyone realizes that Medicare for all sounds wonderful until you explain to people that means they have to give up their insurance that they love at their workplace and get whatever insurance the government says they can have. Now, that's going to feel, that's going to make Obamacare look like a very light touch. And when she says look like a very light touch, she means when you went to the Obamacare portal, and saw that instead of having eight providers to choose from, there was one or two, when she means you get the bill in the mail and you were supposed to be getting a subsidy to help your insurance be cheaper than what it was before, and you were paying 900 a month before, and now you've gotten a bill from Obamacare for 1200 or 2000 So people were getting bills for five and $6,000 a month for Obamacare. They didn't have insurance, so with the mandate, they would look and see, well, what is my... What is my penalty? The penalty is actually cheaper than paying this monthly amount for this insurance. So I guess I'll just have to pay the penalty and still not have health insurance. So when she says Medicare for all will make Obamacare look like a light touch, she means you thought you had it bad then. Just wait until your employer sends you a note saying your health insurance is canceled and you're in the middle of chemotherapy or radiation or you're in the middle of in vitro fertilization treatments and you're not pregnant yet or you're in the middle of some other kind of therapy. It really doesn't matter. If you think about the number of Americans who are currently receiving medical care for some chronic illness or disease, and to have a letter come to you in the mail that says, you know, I'm your employer, 
and we appreciate you, but you do not have insurance anymore. It's over. It's done. We're done with that. You're now on Medicare for All. And the website for that is some Medicare for All is awesome or Medicare for All, thank you, Bernie.com. And then you go to that website and it doesn't work. It crashes because you and 177 million other people have just accessed it all at the same time because you all got the note the same week. That's how this works. When you put the government in charge of stuff, they just start cranking. It's like a machine. They just start cranking it out. What day do we roll out the letters that everybody has been canceled? And on the civilian side, in the private sector, they'll say, well, we have 300,000 employees. We're not going to notify them all on the same day that they need to go to this website because there's no way we can handle the traffic. So why don't we take this by division? This division will get notified. That division will send everyone an email and we'll let them know we're rolling this out employee group by employee group. So when do we want to get this done? Well, we have to plan out with this many employee groups. We're going to plan a controlled rollout that will take us almost two years. And then they'll crunch the numbers and they'll get some vendors in to see if they can get that from two years to one or eight months. And then when they get the final information and all of the planning has been done, which will take them another, you know, 90 days or more, then they will get a, an actual solution and make sure that they've tested and beta tested and done dry rollouts with huge numbers, make sure that the, the redundant website is up and running. So they've got a way, if, if the first website crashes or the servers crash and fail, they've got a redundant website that can pick up that traffic and make sure things are still working. They don't want an embarrassing rollout for their employees because some angry employee will call their sister-in-law or their brother-in-law who works for the Washington Post and tell them about how horrible it is that their employer is treating them like this. But you don't have anybody to call and tattle to if the person who's treating you like this is the government, which is why we don't want Medicare for all. Now, there's also the issue of paying for it. Now, this Medicare for All proposal is a part of the Green New Deal, which would cost up to $93 trillion or, because I love it when they break these numbers down to individual households, it really makes it real for you, doesn't it? Six hundred grand per household. Now, you know me. The first thing I think of when I hear a number like six hundred grand is, that's a house, and it's a fancy house. If you live in the Midwest for $600,000, you are going to get you some house. I mean, nice, big expensive to maintain in a good neighborhood in a triple A rated school on more than, you know, probably more than half an acre, probably more than an acre. 600,000 gets you some nice house in the Midwest. Now it doesn't even get you a part of an apartment in New York, but most of us don't live in New York, do we? So 600,000 per household. It's the sweeping new green new deal. And this is per a study co-authored by the former director of the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. So the former director, the CBO, says in his cost estimate that the Green New Deal doesn't come cheap. It's very expensive. A further expansion of the federal government's role in some of the most basic decisions of daily life that would have a lasting and damaging impact far outreaching even the enormity of its enormous price tag. The breadth of the proposals make it daunting to assess using the standard tools of policy analysis. So uh, Holtz Eakin previously served as an economic advisor to John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign assessed that the resolution's sweeping jobs guarantee would likely run somewhere between $6.8 trillion and $44.6 trillion or approximately 49000 to 322000 per 
household. But if you add in the universal health care, that number pops up to 600 grand per family. Now you might be thinking, okay, 600,000 per family. How outsized is that in relation to what Americans are currently working with? So the median U.S. home price is 228000 So the per family cost of the Green New Deal would actually be almost triple the median U.S. home price. The median household budget for a family of four is 65000 That means half of Americans make more, half of Americans make less. 65000 Now, if you think about the stories that we've been covering here on the show and stories that have really made national news about student loan debt and how many people who are under the age of 45 actually have $200,000 or $100,000 or even seventy-five dollars to $80,000, these astronomical sums that they've borrowed to get through college and how these numbers are breaking them. They have so much student loan debt. Some of these kids, these kids, <laughs> pardon me, these kids, some of these kids actually are facing a life where not only can they not buy a house, they're living at home in their parents' basement, and they can't even move forward with getting married or having a family because when they sit down together on dates and go out, you know, go out with friends and groups, people ask. They're interested in someone and they'll say, well, do you have any student loan debt? I have some or I don't have any. And when they sit down and look at, well, I have 200000 in student loan debt and I have 200000 in student loan debt. So marrying each other is an improbability. You come into the marriage with more student loan debt than your first house would be. You know, your first condo, your first house, you're th- tr- maybe pay 100000 for it, 120000 If you're lucky and you live in an area where you can get a condo for less than $100,000, you are looking at not being able to do that unless you're in one of those STEM fields where right out of the bat you're making seventy dollars or $80,000 a year working in your career field. So the decisions that we're allowing young people to make they're going to go to college and study history and borrow 55000 a year for a four-year degree that it takes them five years to get. That's a losing proposition. I, and I, I have to look back through my show sheets. Um, we did interview a young woman who'd written a book, and she shared something similar about how, you know, she married a guy who had student loan debt. She didn't have any. And this was intentional. Her parents actually guided her through college. She worked. She didn't she did not have, you know, a, a gap year and take trips and do she not, did none of that stuff, but she came out of college with a degree in a field that serves her and no student loan debt. And I think that's going to be the the kind of quote finger area of privilege in the future is finding someone who you like, that you're interested in, that that you share things in common with, that you want to make a life with, who isn't coming into the marriage with hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loan debt. And I, I'm, I find it pretty sad, really, because I think there's a lot of hopefulness that people experience when they're, you know, you're young, you've just graduated from college, but having that much student loan debt actually makes it so you're not hopeful and you're not graduating with this feeling like I can take on the world, I can do this, I can do that. And the other part about it that is really interesting to me is you know, you've got Mike Rowe with Dirty Jobs. He, um, he's actually, his television shows on CNN and, and um, Trinity Broadcast Network have really highlighted the fact that there are so many jobs out there that you don't need a four-year degree to do. 
that can make you a six-figure income. The main one is plumbers. And I know, you know, for some people, they don't want to be plumbers. But if you can make a six-figure income and not have to go to a four-year college to do it, and you could run your own business and employ a lot of other people and be in demand, always having work to do, um, you know, it's worth looking at. This is a societal shift that I think has to be made in the homes across this country at the kitchen tables where we sit down with our kids and our spouse and we say, you know, um, what are you interested in studying? And if your child is talking about studying as a freshman or a sophomore in high school, they want to be an English major or a history major, that means they're going to be a teacher or a professor. And you need to tell your kid that. You're not going to get a degree in history and then go work at a law firm unless you're going there to work as a paralegal. And a paralegal salary is not going to pay student loan bills. These are conversations that we need to have. And I think it really starts even before they're freshmen in high school. When your kids are teeny tiny, introducing them to math as something that's fun, science as something that's fun and interesting, to shape the things that they like and are interested in, they'll have their own natural gifts and abilities, but making those things just as palatable and and fun and enjoyable as any other subjects means you're going to set your child up for more options later on when they are making the decision for themselves. I think one of the most important things we can do besides praying for our kids is to be brutally honest with them that for women, you can't wait until you're 35 to decide to start having kids. And for all of our kids, that college is not the only way to a successful life in America and that student loan debt is a killer. It's a path to uh, really unhappiness. It's not kids who make you unhappy, it's debt. And that's biblical too. All right. If you're leaving us now, God bless from the heartland. If you're sticking around, you have One News Now information coming at you next.